Hi there, this is Brian Barnett with The Last Symptom. When I started The Last Symptom, I never in a million years imagined it would grow as it has. In these early shows especially, audio quality was often iffy, and there were references to services or online groups that are outdated and no longer in use. Great improvements have been made. Where should you go for all of the most up-to-date resources that I offer? TheLastSymptom.com is my permanent website full of free resources where everything is always up to date and that I encourage you to refer back to often. There are also a few modest paid resources at TheLastSymptom.com. These support my efforts and have allowed The Last Symptom to exist for as long as it has. These include one-on-one phone conversations with me one-on-one Zoom video calls with me, and perhaps most importantly, the Last Symptom Fundamentals course, which is a two-week, intensive, pre-recorded online video course that is far superior to things like DBT. The Last Symptom has a flourishing YouTube and Rumble channel where I publish regular orange slices, which are condensed video insights of five or ten minutes in length. If you're just now discovering the last symptom, welcome. I hope you will find every insight and resource you need here for authentic and permanent recovery from emotional disorders such as borderline personality disorder. Now on to the show. Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental health nor emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he has gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as they individually and personally choose while accepting full responsibility for their own individual thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you are acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Happy Thursday, everybody. This is Brian Barnett. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. There's so many things to talk about this week, and I doubt I'll even get a tenth of it crammed into today's episode. Hey, uh, what's your opinion on black licorice? The reason I ask is because my neighbor gave me a huge pack of black licorice the other day. And it reminded me of what a huge role black licorice has always played in my life. But, you know, it's something I don't usually think of. It's just always been one of those things in the background, you know, that that I've just sort of taken for granted over the passing of so many years. My dad always had black licorice in his work truck. And on Saturdays, he'd often wake my brother and I up and take us into town with him. You know, we lived far out in the woods. And he'd take us into town. It was his custom, generally, to visit different auto parts stores. So that was kind of my environment growing up, around the the dirty, oily guys at the uh, auto parts stores and the the girly calendars, you know. (laughs) There was always girly calendars hanging up in the auto parts stores of yesteryear. Not so much in the, the big commercial ones of today. When I was a kid, we never took our 
cars to mechanics. My dad always insisted on doing it himself and uh, making my brother and I help him. And when I say help, generally just watching and holding flashlights and that sort of thing. It seemed like every weekend one of our cars or trucks was broke down. So uh, dad would make us go out and help him. And that would gobble up my entire Saturdays. It was kind of a torturous thing for me at that age. And to make matters worse, we had no garage. All the work was done outside in a gravel driveway through all sorts of weather. The whole Saturday would go by and it'd be dark. We'd still be fumbling with it. And uh, then my job would be to hold the flashlight. Anyway, I'm straying pretty far from black licorice. My point was that I remember every time I'd ride with my dad in his work truck to the auto parts stores, uh, I remember eating the black licorice that he kept that he kept in his work truck. So when my neighbor handed me this pack of black licorice, I said, oh, yeah, yeah, this is good. I'm going to share this, this great part of myself, this thing I love, with my daughter. Let me tell you, it did not go the way I imagined it in my head. <laughs> She put it in her mouth, and then her face sort of melted like wax into this expression of horror and disgust. (laughs) And she literally started gagging like she was going to throw up. It was probably the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. So she spit it out, and, you know, it's all okay. She doesn't like black licorice, and that's fine. I'll give it another try here in another year or so. Speaking of black licorice, um, many of you know that I grew up, you know, way out in the woods and hundreds of acres of woods. And black licorice comes from a plant that we call sweet anise. I don't know if that's the real name for it or not, but we call it sweet anise. And uh, this sweet anise grew wild all over the place throughout the woods that I grew up in as a kid. And we'd dig it up and we'd eat that root. And the root tastes just like black licorice. It tastes just like the black licorice you buy at the store. In fact, we'd even take a container into the woods, and we'd stuff that container full of sweet anise root, and we'd place that container under like a running stream, and then we'd come back a day or so later, and then we'd have sweet anise-flavored water, (laughs) black licorice-flavored water, sort of like the Propel athletic drinks you can get nowadays, but, uh, you know, it's an acquired taste, (laughs) so... I doubt a lot of people would in, would enjoy my, my concoction. Last summer, I went on a six-day, five-night backpacking trip out in northeastern PA, out at the famed Pine Creek Gorge out there in Pennsylvania. It's known to many as Pennsylvania's Grand Canyon. On about the second or third day of this backpacking trip, uh, my buddy and I, we were traveling down through this holler, and uh, I come up on a big batch of sweet anise. It was the first time I'd seen sweet anise growing outside of the Appalachian region where I grew up. So, of course, I dug up a mess of it, and I took it with me, and I munched on it in camp later that night. Uh, It tends to grow in moist, low-lying areas. So if you come down to an area where there's a lot of greenery, you can tell when you're in the woods. When you get to an area that's well, where it's naturally well irrigated, you can tell that the plants are abnormally healthy. And green. And it's in those areas where you'll generally find sweet anise. Okay, enough about black licorice. There's a message I got this week, a very nice message, where the writer disagreed with me on something that I want to share with you. 
contrary to popular belief, I don't mind people disagreeing with me. This is my chance to respond to her and to use it as a teaching moment. And I'll read the whole, well, I'll read most of the message uh, here in a second, but let's get started here. She starts by saying, Dear Mr. Barnett, now for the record, nobody has to call me Mr. Mr. Barnett is my dad. (laughs) Brian will do for me. She says, I just read a few of your posts. The one where a parent asks how to deal with a daughter with borderline personality disorder and your more elaborate answer to the question whether borderline personality disorder is genetic. All very interesting. Glad to have discovered your posts. I do disagree with your note on how different siblings deal with neglectful parents because I do believe parents sometimes treat their children differently. So again, we'll get back to the rest of her message in a second, because it's really nice and charming. But let's stop here for a second. What mistake in logic did the writer just make here? Let me read the thing again that she says she disagrees with, and see if you can pick out her mistake in logic. She says, I do disagree with your note on how different siblings deal with neglectful parents because I do believe parents sometimes treat their children differently. I do believe parents sometimes treat treat their children differently. So what mistake in logic is she making here? Is it parental treatment which causes emotional unhealth in children? I have always stressed that it is the underlying attitudes that parents operate on which is what causes the damage. That is what causes damage to the emotional health of children. Unhealthy perspective and unhealthy attitudes. That is what causes emotional damage. See, this is what this is what children observe and learn. They get their emotional education from their parents. Whatever view of life the parents operate on, that gets passed on to children. So the person above can disagree all she wants, but she's disagreeing with an imaginary argument that she and I have never had. When I say our argument, I just mean discussion. She's disagreeing with a fictional stance that she imagines that I am taken, which I've not taken. So imagine a family of 12 kids, and you've got two parents who operate with a subconscious perspective that feelings are shameful, all right? Can you imagine them? These two parents living their life, raising their kids, and this foundation that they operate on is that feelings are shameful. They don't even know that they believe this. Because it's just been passed on generation to generation, and here they are, living life with this fundamental, this foundation perspective that that's the nature of feelings, that they're shameful. Does it matter if they treat little Tommy more favorably than they treat little Sally? (laughs) It's not even relevant. That detail is not even relevant in the least bit. Why not? 
Because the issue is not whether the kids end up with borderline personality disorder, specifically or not. The specific emotional disorder is totally irrelevant. The relevant issue is emotional health versus emotional unhealth. So I think a lot of people who listen to me and follow my work get hung up on borderline personality disorder. But is that the most relevant detail? Here's the thing. No matter how well little Tommy is treated by his parents, what are they still passing on? They're passing on the same thing they're passing on to little Sally, who they treat less favorably. The distorted concept perceptions and attitudes which form the foundation of their emotional education, you see. I've said that the messages, the messages communicated in parents' attitudes and behaviors are what pass on emotional unhealth and causes specific things like borderline personality disorder, while at the same time not being limited to borderline personality disorder. How can the same messages and attitudes that cause borderline personality disorder cause completely different forms of emotional unhealth. It's because another part of the formula is that the child's individual personality type is in play as well. I can go right now and take a look at a litter of 10-day-old puppies. And guess what? After a few short minutes, I'll be able to distinguish that each puppy has an individual distinct personality. Now, this is puppies we're talking about. Imagine how much truer that is for human babies. So you're born with a particular personality, and then your parents' unhealthy attitudes come up against and encounter your specific personality type. The messages in your parents' attitudes and behaviors conflict with the reality, the greater reality you live in. And this creates confusion and pain often subconscious confusion and pain. It's not a confusion and pain, you know, that you're walking around analyzing when you're six years old. So how are you going to cope with the pain and the confusion of those messages? Well, you adopt a pattern or a strategy. And this happens subconsciously. You do, it's not something that you sit down with a pen and paper and work out. The pattern or strategy that you adopt because of your personality type, is the disorder you end up with. I mean, what is, a, what is borderline personality disorder when you compare it to narcissism, for example? It's just one way of dealing with the same stuff. It's just one way of, of approaching the same problem. So, no matter what your parents' treatment is, the messages in their attitudes and behaviors just is what it is. And all the children are exposed to this equally. Treatment has nothing to do with it. It's their attitudes and perspectives. That's what gets passed on. That's what does the damage. You know, Dad doesn't suddenly have a different view of life when he deals with Tommy than when he deals with Sally. Attitudes are what they are. And every kid that these parents raise get the same dose of that emotional education. They're all, they're all looking to mom and dad. Whatever mom and dad's attitudes are, that's, that's what they adopt. So this was my chance to reply to her.
And uh, it was also a way for me to help you understand where her reasoning is missing the mark. I, I hope she hears this. I hope it gives her something to think about. Her message ends this way. But that is not why I mail. You wrote another post on smells, <laughs> and it's one of my pet subjects. I'm very sensitive to them. In the article she's talking about, I had uh, mentioned that polo, classic polo cologne, is what I've been using since I was about 13 years old. She says, I just wanted to suggest to maybe try another scent when your Ralph Lauren bottle of Polo Classic runs out. Kyoto by Comme de Garçon. I can't speak French. I ruined French. You folks who speak French, I forgive me. Forgive me. I know you're sensitive to, <laughs> to people butchering your language. Uh, she says, I think you might like it. It's a great scent for any man, but definitely one for a woodsy type. I live on another continent entirely, Belgium. Just wanted to do something nice. Have a great day. So I thought that was very nice. And uh, I will be tracking down that cologne. And if I can afford it, which is not a sure thing, <laughs> I'll give it a try. I'm, I'm willing to try anything twice. Now let's get into the meat and potatoes of today's discussion. In the past... I have discussed the difference between guilt and shame and why it is imperative to have a perfectly clear distinction between them. But this is such an important matter that I want to talk about it more today. Shame and guilt. What is the difference and why does it matter to know the difference? As you're probably tired of hearing me say, feelings are just information. They're a type of message about our surroundings or our needs, or about ourselves. Every feeling you can imagine has a constructive purpose except for one. And that feeling is shame. It can be said that shame is never constructive. Now, there ain't many things in life that are not relative or subjective. That is to say, concretely black and white. Very, very few things. One of them is the, the fastest a thing can go. The fastest a thing can go is one concrete truth. It's black and white. You, you can't get around it. And of course, the fastest the thing can go is the speed of light. And everything that scientists do is built off of that. It's basically built off of that concrete certainty, you see? So when you encounter something that is truly black and white, concrete, it's pretty special because it's so rare to find something that is not subject to terms of relativity or uh, sub subjectivity. So when I say that shame is never constructive. I don't simply mean that it is just not constructive most of the time. Mm -mm. It is truly never constructive. So what does this mean for us? It means that anytime you become aware of its influence on you, you can just let it go. As soon as you identify that that is what you're feeling, you can just let it go. 
You can either let it go or you can convert it into guilt, which is the constructive opposite of shame. As a brief review, see if you can tell the major identifying difference between the two. What distinguishes one from the other, guilt and shame? All right? Guilt says, this is what it tells you. I did something wrong. All right? Easy enough. Shame says, I am what is wrong. Guilt says, I did something shitty. (laughs) I did something shitty. Shame says, I am a piece of shit. You know, I wish I could just uh, pause there for 30 minutes to an hour and just let you think about what I just said. Just let you chew over those four examples I just gave you. Why is it relevant? Well, because I'm constantly telling you how at the root of borderline personality disorder, at the very foundation of the disorder, are two distorted core beliefs. Sometimes I talk about them as subconscious foundation certainties. And other times I, I refer to them as emotional an emotional algorithm. Whatever the case, whatever you want to call them, these two distorted core beliefs that form the foundation of borderline personality disorder are my feelings are inherently irrelevant and shameful, devoid of worth. And if my feelings are irrelevant and shameful, devoid of worth, then so am I. Now let's stop here for a minute. Do you notice that the two distorted core beliefs that form the foundation of borderline personality disorder are simply a detailed description of shame? This might be a big revelation for some people. Yes, think about it closely. Shame, what shame is, and the two distorted core beliefs of borderline personality disorder are the exact same thing, just described differently. What are feelings? Well, they're information, right? We've said it a million times, and information comes to us in different forms. Interestingly, scientists have managed to teleport, to teleport things on an atomic scale. They've been able to Transport like an atom or a, you know, a, a neutrino or you know things like this. I'm, I'm not. I don't know the specifics, but they've been able to do this. How do they do it? Does the thing disappear in one pod and reappear in the other pod? Mm-mm. What they do is they they subtract the information from that thing. They deconstruct it. It, dis, it they destroy it. They send the information to the other pod, and the information reconstructs it there. Fascinating, right? So when we talk about uh, how information takes many forms, you better believe it. Information is not just, uh, you know, what you read in the newspaper. Everything, every, every bit of feedback that you receive from your environment is information. So what are feelings? They are information. And information comes to us in different forms. And what is one form through which information arrives to us? messages. So feelings are messages. Feelings are messages. Shame is a message your body experiences. And what is the message 
that shame carries. That you are, you are a piece of shit. That you are inherently irrelevant and shameful. That you are devoid of worth. Not that you did something shitty. Not that you did something irrelevant. Not that you did something worthless. But that you yourself are shit. That you yourself are worthless. That you yourself are irrelevant. Do you see the destructiveness of shame? You can't fix what you inherently are. And shame lies to you about what you inherently are. There's nothing a cockroach can ever do to not be a cockroach. No matter what he does, no matter where he goes, no matter what disguise he puts on, no matter who accepts him as a part of their group, no matter, no matter, no matter, he will always be what he is. This is what the word inherent means. See, nearly 100% of people walk into recovery from emotional disorders and specifically borderline personality disorder, hauling around the weight of what they believe is guilt. And nearly 100% of the time, that guilt is not guilt at all, but rather it is shame. Since we know that shame is never constructive, it's either something you can just dump right away, that is, any time it rears its head, you can just say, nope, I see what you're up to, buddy, and I ain't having it. Or you can work to convert it to guilt. So, now you've got this immediate, practical exercise to practice with. You know, this is something you should be doing every day, all the time. How do we know something is not guilt? How can we identify, all right, this isn't guilt that I'm feeling, it's shame. Well, guilt says you did something wrong, and you need to do it differently in the future. Therefore, anything you feel that you believe is guilt, but which you are not personally responsible for, and that you can't change, and which happened any time before you were an adult, that is to say, between birth and age 18, because anything that happened between birth and age 18 happened while you were still a dependent. You were dependent on your parents, which means that they are responsible for all that stuff, not you. You know, if, if you're still carrying around something that, that you're mistaken for guilt, <laughs> uh, that you did, or that happened to you, or anything, anything that occurred between the time you were born to the time that you were an independent adult, your parents are responsible for that, not you. Not you. What that means in practical terms is that, all right, you look back, you've got this memory that's nagging you, making you feel bad. You say, oh, wait a second. I was 13 when I, when I did that. Well, I can just let that go. I can just let it go. There's no reason for me to be dragging that weight around. My parents need to be dragging that weight if anybody's going to drag it. Not me. 
we'll talk about this in greater detail. The, the point that I just brought out about how your parents are responsible for it and not you. But in the meantime, you can be pretty certain that anything that you're still dragging around that happened between the time you were born to the time that you became an independent free agent is not guilt, but shame. And once you identify it as shame, you can just let it go. No questions asked. No questions asked. Just let it go. And, you know, that translates to an enormous, enormous amount of baggage that you can just let go of. Remember, shame says I am something wrong. I am something wrong. And guilt says I did something wrong. Anything that's making you feel like you are something wrong is a lie. It's, it's totally untrue. As such, you can just let it go. As soon as you identify it as shame, you can just let it go. No questions asked. So immediately, you can just unload a ton of baggage, years and years and years of baggage, that you can just, with a perfectly clean conscience, just let it go and focus only on what you feel guilty about. For anything you appropriately feel guilt about, your efforts toward recovery are probably already the fruits of it. You see, guilt's purpose is to bring about change, make you do better, and then the guilt goes away. So your current efforts are probably the result of any genuine guilt you might feel, which is appropriate. And once the guilt provokes a change in behavior and genuine efforts to do better moving forward, you can just let guilt go then because it has served its purpose. Guilt's purpose is to provoke sincere effort towards change. And once it does that, what reason is there for it to stick around? Guilt doesn't stick around once it's served its purpose. Shame sticks around because, remember, it tries to drag you down about your inherent defectiveness which is not a real thing. Nobody is inherently defective. Now, acceptance is an important element here uh, that also comes into play because acceptance is simply the recognition that things just are what they are, that things just are what they are and you can't change them. Now, notice this does not mean agreeing with or endorsing the thing you accept. It doesn't mean agreeing with or endorsing it. It simply means seeing a thing or the reality of a situation for what it truly is. So when I was a kid, I used to catch uh, flying grasshoppers. And when I'd catch these grasshoppers, I'd rip off all their legs and I'd burn their eyeballs with a magnifying glass. This is something I did for a short period of time when I was about, oh, eight years old. I was about eight years old and I used to do it with a, a friend of mine. The playground of the country school we went to had thousands of these flying grasshoppers flying and hopping around. There's several lessons here. What am I responsible for when I'm eight years old? Well, I'm responsible to my parents within context. They are responsible for helping educate and guide me through life. But even more than this, they are even responsible for my failures and my mistakes. Now, pay attention to that. I'm not responsible for my failures and my mistakes. They're responsible for my failures and my mistakes. It's illustrated. If I steal a car, I'm eight years old and I steal a car, 
and I crash the car. Who's responsible for my theft? Who's going to be paying off that car? My parents. My parents are responsible for my theft, and they're responsible for the destruction of that property. Now, you might say, well, they're going to uh, discipline me. They're going to they're going to ground me, and they're going to uh, take that out of my allowance. They're going to make me work it off. Okay, what if I don't? What if I don't? Who is the uh, the owners of that property really getting their money from? <laughs> from my parents. Who are the owners of that property going to take to court? My parents. Who is the court going to make a judgment against? My parents. You know, I, I hate to compare children to dogs, but I'm going to for now because I think that it, it illustrates the point really well. Let's say that I take my dog to a, a dog park. Or, well, let's just say that I take my dog for a walk around the neighborhood, all right? And um, let's say that uh, he gets free of me, gets loose out of my hand, and he runs over and he bites somebody. Is my dog responsible for what he did? Is my dog going to pay the, the fines when I get sued? <laughs> no. As the owner, I'm, I'm responsible. My dog is not responsible for anything he does. It's all my responsibility. Because I am the responsible party. So when we're talking about parents being responsible for everything you did, the entire time you were a child, all the way up to when you were, all the way up until you become an independent free agent. Now does it? Now is it more clear why? Even though at eight I might have some sort of notion that torturing grasshoppers is wrong, I can't have a full grasp of what wrong means. For one thing, children are exploring the world like little scientists, and you know they can't be faulted for this. It's what. It's how all kids learn. It's how healthy and unhealthy kids learn. But also, I'm incapable of fully understanding the concept that what I'm doing is wrong and why it's wrong. Sure, maybe I, I know that my parents told me not to do it, but I lack the capacity to fully understand why they're telling me this. When we say that one lacks the capacity for something, it means that they couldn't do it even if they wanted to. They're not just unable they're incapable. You know, it's like me asking my dog to write a novel and submit it for publication. It's totally beyond anything he'll ever be capable of doing. Therefore, it makes no logical sense for me to hold him responsible for failing to be able to do what he's incapable of doing. Eight-year-olds could not fully understand concepts of right and wrong even if they wanted to because their development, their growth will not reach that maturity for years yet for years to come so let's say I've tortured grasshoppers in my past and nobody ever finds out about it and yet at 30 years old the memory is still wrenching apart my insides the memory that I did something so terrible is it guilt? No, it's shame. How do I know? Because at 30 years of age, odds are that I'm not still torturing bugs. <laughs> this means I felt guilt, which was a message, okay? And it said, hey, 
what you're doing is wrong. And this could have either been in regards to disobeying my parents or the torturing bugs in and of itself. Whatever the case, I stopped torturing bugs. I developed, I matured, my capacity evolved. But let's say that I'm still being uh, weighed down by something that's easily mistaken for guilt, but that can't be guilt. It can't be guilt because guilt already served its purpose. My guilt already brought about a change in behavior. See, once guilt serves its purpose, once once it provokes change, it goes away. Because there's no longer anything to feel guilty about. You're no longer doing that thing that you were doing. So what I'm feeling instead is shame. And shame is a non-constructive emotion telling me that I myself am a piece of shit. That this explains why, at eight years old, I was capable of torturing grasshoppers and being fascinated by it. The reality is that, one, kids are still learning about the world at age eight, and they've not developed to a stage where they're capable of fully understanding life and the world. And as such, they naturally explore out of curiosity. In the process of this, they do things that to us as adults seem downright barbaric. But remember, we have development that they don't have. Two, children who are dependent on their caregivers aren't responsible for their own actions or mistakes. It's the whole meaning of dependent. Children's development is simply not there so that they could take care of these things on their own even if they wanted to. Just like it's absurd to hold my dog accountable for things that he's incapable of doing, I can't expect a child to naturally and fully understand all of the reasons why it's wrong to torture bugs. They're, they're incapable of fully understanding these things, even if we remember it differently. You know, this is kind of an important point. Even if we remember it differently. See, you've always been you. So at 30, when you think back to your 8-year-old self and you kick yourself over and over again, you're doing that because you're imagining that that 8-year-old should have known better. And why are you imagining that? Because you're judging him or her based on your current development and grasp of the world. You're not going back and saying, oh, these are all the things I didn't know back then and didn't understand. The reason why you're kicking yourself over and over again is because you're taking your current mature understanding of the world and knowledge and assuming that your eight-year-old self also had all of that. So it's not fair. Eight-year-olds don't have the development that you have. This is why we don't allow dependence to take out mortgages, drive cars, get married, make business decisions because they couldn't do these things with the proper understanding and perspective and life experience, even if they wanted to. Now the 30-year-old self of us, (laughs) I wish I were 30 again. Uh, So now the 43-year-old self of me can look at this situation and realize, holy mackerel, I've not been carrying guilt over this for all these years. It's been shame. And once I recognize it as shame, I can just let it go. A 
proper perspective and acceptance of the reality of the situation allows us to just let it go. If we're not letting something go, there's a reason for that. Our perspective on the matter is still distorted. Or, in matters of guilt, we're responsible, but instead of allowing guilt to change our behavior, we've buckled down and we've not made any changes. You know, that's possible. And there are many reasons this might happen. An unwillingness to sincerely examine ourselves. Uh, An unwillingness to change or a pleasure in doing what we instinctively know is wrong. But shame and guilt are worlds apart, and anything that falls under the category of shame, the only thing that's needed for us to totally dump that and never deal with it again is accurate, proper perspective and acceptance. So get into the habit. Anytime you feel guilt, that is, anytime you feel what you think is guilt, ask yourself, am I feeling this way about myself or about what I did? If I do this differently in the future, will the guilt go away? Because it should. That's the whole purpose of guilt. If you do things differently moving forward, but the guilt doesn't go away, then you can be sure that it's not guilt. It's shame. If your guilt has anything to do with what you did or anything that happened to you while you were a dependent, that's shame. That's not guilt. And we've explained the reasons why. If your guilt has anything to do with anything you personally did not carry out or could have prevented, then that's shame. That's not guilt. So it might be useful for some to stay on this point until it clicks because really this needs to be your focus until it does click. What is guilt? What is shame? And how are they not at all the same thing? Until you understand this insightfully and intuitively, you're going to be stuck in your progress. Because shame is at the root of absolutely everything you're dealing with. Shame is the two distorted core beliefs of borderline personality disorder. And the two distorted core beliefs of borderline personality disorder are shame. They're they're the same thing. When you feel bad about something you've done wrong, this motivates you to do things differently in the future. That's that's guilt. But when you feel bad about yourself and see yourself as the problem, not what you've done, but yourself, this doesn't motivate you to do anything. What is there to do? You can't change what you just are. And shame says you just are a piece of shit. Remember, what can a cockroach do that will ever make him not a cockroach? Nothing. So if he hates himself for being a cockroach, what purpose can that hate possibly serve? What can he change to make that hate go away? Nothing. He'll always be a cockroach and nothing can change this. Totally non-constructive. Nothing constructive about shame. 
So everybody should be asking themselves, is this feeling telling me that I made a mistake or that I am a mistake? That I did something shitty or that I am shit? This is an immediately practical exercise that everybody can take up and see huge strides forward in recovery almost overnight. Thank you for being here for this week's episode. I hope it gives everybody plenty to do and plenty to think about until we talk again. Next Thursday, same place, same time. This is Brian Barnett signing off. Have a nice week, everybody. Thanks for listening.